Welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Evan Myers. And we are editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is the quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. Aims up Americans think a little more clearly about our public life. Rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It's published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we are very excited to be joined by Andy Smerick. Andy is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, where his work focuses on education, civil society, and the principles of American conservatism. Andy is also on the University of Maryland Systems Board of Regents. Previously, he was the director of a program on civil society, education, and work at the R Street Institute, served as an aide in, the president, in President George W. Bush's White House Domestic Policy Council, and helped found the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. For our summer 2022 issue, Andy authored an essay about how subsidiarity, a principle of Catholic social teaching, can help guide legislators making family policy. Today, conservatives are confronted with falling birth rates, a persistent decline in the number of people getting married, and a sharp rise in the number of children being raised outside of stable two-parent families. Understandably, they want to do something to help. But Andy writes that rather than looking to the federal government for assistance and continuing to centralize power, they should consider applying the lessons of subsidiarity to strengthen local and state institutions and support struggling families. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, Andy, as I mentioned, uh, your essay is about the, the Catholic principle of subsidiarity um, and how that can help policymakers think about supporting uh, American families. Uh, I, I'm, I'm Catholic. I'm a recent convert actually Catholicism, and I, of course, love papal encyclicals, but it's not exactly the first thing I would think about uh, when I'm thinking about, okay, family policy or just public policy in general. So we want to start the conversation with asking, um, you know, what, what is subsidiarity? Why did you become interested in it? Why do you think it was important to try to apply a religious principle like this to public policy? Uh, and yeah, just why do you think it's relevant uh, to policy discussions today? Well, uh, thanks for the question, and you're exactly right. I mean, what most people, when they're thinking about public policy, they'll go back to Hobbes or Locke or the Federalist Papers, mm. or if you're looking for some source of wisdom or knowledge there, or the, the touchstones that everybody uses. Uh, a big part of my thinking on this is that I was on a search for myself. Like, I wasn't trying to necessarily convince anyone of anything when I began this project. I wanted to figure out for myself, how does an American conservative who believes in things like federalism and localism and civil society, but also believes in things like natural law, natural right, duty, republicanism, responsibility, the common good, how do I make sense of these competing demands uh, related to family policy? And one reason why I love subsidiarity is because it is a set of rules that is developed over well, well more than a, a century now yeah. and going back even further before it had that name. Uh, so it has great wisdom in it and it is based on, yes, uh, the faith-based aspect of Catholic social teaching, the Catholic church, but also the Catholic church um, is involved in the real lives of real people, especially the disadvantaged, like the ministry part of it. Um, the church deals with parishes and it deals with dioceses and often has to deal with policy and government leaders. So it's really engaged with the real people, and so these lessons have come about, and they're rooted in things that I think are important, like natural law, natural right, but also um, an understanding of the, the sanctity of human life, the importance of the family, the role of different government bodies in people's lives, and also 
mediating institutions. And so as I was trying to answer for myself, what is the right way to think about family policy today? Well, something for me are, is a century-old uh, body of wisdom known as subsidiarity um, through Catholic social teaching. So that's where I began. Well, Andy, thanks so much. You know, to follow up on that, I sort of wanted to ask about your audience for the piece, you know, who the, who the piece is kind of written to or for. To me, it seemed that it was addressed to people on the right who are advocating for a more robust role for the federal government in forming policy. You know, in particular, you actually identify in the piece, I'm quoting here, nationalism, populism, integralism, industrial planning, common good capitalism, and common good constitutionalism as quote-unquote strands of statism that should pay more attention to subsidiarity. Where does this right-wing statism come from? Do you think it has any roots in, in the Catholic or the conservative tradition? And, and why, in your view, has it become more prominent in recent years, or would you even agree that it has? Very good question or questions there. So audience for this, like I said at the beginning, was kind of me at the beginning. I want to understand better so I could have a coherent cohesive vision on the way to think about the government action and family policy. But then I also started thinking about people who were also looking for a new way of thinking about these issues who don't just want to latch on to a particular program or policy. If they're looking for principles, what are the principles we could give them? Mm -hmm. um, I was also interested in uh, other people who believe in faith traditions, and regardless of what it is, um, Catholics, uh, Protestant, Evangelical, uh, whatever kind of faith tradition, that is, there are these um, traditions that have centuries, in some cases millennia, worth of wisdom built into them, that uh, they're dealing with real people in real lives, so maybe what they've learned over time can inform public policy. Um, I was also thinking about people who are in positions of government power right now, and they are, whether they're right of center or left of center, generally I'm thinking about the right of center folks, that may have grown up with a Reaganite or Milton Friedman or Hayek the world, but for some reason, uh, those beliefs have been jostled or they're uncertain. Um, so maybe they just want some answers on this or new ways of thinking about things. And the last category are the people that you mentioned, which are, so I'm a Gen X uh, Republican conservative. And so like I have always thought in terms of limited government, decentralization, civil society, sure. and this new generation of folks on the right, and by generation, I don't necessarily mean age, but maybe I say cohort or strand of folks on the right who are interested to big government, not just big as in it does a whole lot of things, but the biggest government, the federal government doing more and more things. And I list some categories of people who are interested in this. I wanted and often these folks do refer to themselves as conservative. I wanted to either introduce them for the first time or reintroduce them to this body of knowledge that has informed conservatives in the past, why it is some of us believe deeply in uh, properly assigning duty and power responsibility to different entities within society. And what part of that means is you just can't always default to Uncle Sam and say, we want X done. Uncle Sam is the biggest, most powerful, therefore Uncle Sam should do X. So there are a bunch of different audiences, but I have to concede, yes, part of my thinking was how is it that people on the right suddenly love or um, have become infatuated with the idea of a big, muscular Uncle Sam? 
Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I just want to follow up and drill down on these questions a little bit, too. Um, I know I threw a bunch of them at you. You know, you, you talk about them as, as part of your audience, but where, where do they even come from? Like, where, where do these conservatives get the idea that this is something that the state should be doing, that the state should be taking a more robust role? And do you think they're sort of like, I mean, how do you see these people? Do you, do you see them as sort of faux conservatives? They're they're sort of using the the costume of conservatism, but really they're they're substituting in this this big state or is there actually some kind of vein in the conservative tradition at least as you understand it and in particular in American conservative tradition for example that these people are sort of coming from maybe it died down in, in, in the sort of Reagan era and is now coming back or how, how do you see it great question so um I don't want to get too hung up on the word conservatism but I also don't want to ignore it so let me um answer it in this way it is it is absolutely the case that conservatism generally can um, include notions of a big government, but that's not really American conservatism. Conservatism is at root conser- conserving, preserving, um, fostering the beliefs, the institutions, the practices that work for a certain people in a certain place and presumably over time in that place. So it harkens back to the traditional practices, um, beliefs of a geography of a people. And so Chinese conservatism or um, English or French conservatism will be different than Brazilian or Russian conservatism. And American conservatism is about conserving the things that have made America work. And so because America has been founded on things like um, federalism, enumerated powers, uh, separate branches of government, uh, a list of uh, liberties, but also the idea that there are unenumerated liberties, whether under the 14th Amendment or 9th Amendment, that are part of ordered liberty, that are part of our traditions, that are part of our histories. Um, Also part of America's tradition that should be conserved is the Tocquevillian idea of uh, voluntary associations, Mm -hmm. localism, um, social entrepreneurialism. So these things are part of the American system, and they have been, and they have made us different. And I think they've made us better uh, than a lot of countries, just in terms of like happiness and output and and whatever else they are ours so those are the things that need to be conserved i do find it difficult to square a lot of those traditions with a view that the federal government should be big and bossy and take away or ignore the prerogatives of state governments local governments voluntary associations families individuals now, having said all that, there are people on the right today who believe in some of these things, like industrial planning, who think that it's consistent with some strands of conservative thought. I think that that is way too technocratic, too expert-based, certainly for me, and I think for a lot of the traditions of American conservatism. I think populism, which is uh, part of the right uh, at the moment, often leads to statism, which I think is unhealthy. Um, and there are just some people who are frustrated that America has gone in a certain direction and the people, the American conservative has lost a lot of battles, whether because of the courts, because of public opinion, because of the administrative state. And there are some on the right who are just tired of losing and they're sick and tired of focusing on procedure and process. And they just want to win sometimes by whatever means necessary. And they look at the biggest player 
uh, out there, which is Uncle Sam, and say, well, if we capture the federal government, then we can force our will and we can bring about the common good or the public good. I just, Mm -hmm. that's not my brand of conservatism. And I think that runs into a lot of our traditions um, and could lead us down uh, unhelpful directions for a lot of reasons. Sure. Uh, And Andy, that's a good lead into our next question. Um, You know, a couple of these new strands on the right you mentioned uh, were things like integralism or a common good constitutionalism. I know there's a lot of different terms for it, but the, the funny thing or the interesting thing is that um, they also claim to be, hey, we're just applying Catholic social teaching. They just think that, oh, you know, to to apply it, you need a stronger state on things, whether it's social issues like um, marriage between a man and a woman or abortion or economic things like justice for the poor. Um, they say you do need a stronger state to fulfill those aspects of Catholic social teaching. Is, do you think, is that opposed to your view? Are there ways to reconcile that type of view with subsidiarity? Obviously, Catholic social teaching is a very vast, broad, you know, uh, longstanding um, type of thought, as you as you suggest. Uh, but h- how do we reconcile those, those different camps um, on the right who both claim to be uh, applying Catholic social teaching? I think that anybody who wants to invoke Catholic social teaching has to... Um, at least engage with all of the major planks that are part of this Catholic social teaching. So that includes a notion of the common good. What is that? A notion of social justice. What is that? A notion of solidarity, a notion of subsidiarity. Uh, And uh, CST, Catholic social teaching, has um, lots and lots and lots of been written on all of those subjects. What you can't do, what I think people should not do, is pick out a subject like the common good, define it narrowly, and then say we need to advance that through the government however however we can. If you do that to the exclusion of these other kind of principles like subsidiarity, solidarity, um, the policy recommendations that you come up with can be warped. So what I would just say to people who want to invoke CST um, as a way of bulking up a central government is at least engage with solidarity and subsidiarity Uh, because I don't know how you can be familiar with subsidiarity as I try to explain in my piece and walk away with the idea that we need Uncle Sam to do a whole lot more across like all of the domains of public life. There are just too many, um, too many things said, too many things written by too many popes, too many scholars over too many generations to think that the default setting should be the federal government should do everything or do um, a lot, especially as it relates to families. But one thing I do want to concede here, or not even concede, but make sure is clear. Subsidiarity isn't just about distributing power and hyper-decentralization. It's about the proper ordering of duty. What are the things that people and organizations ought to do? Um, And authority, power, what are the things that they can do and only they can do? And so part of that is individuals and families and local governments ought to do things. They have spheres of influence. But part of that is also the federal government has powers um, and only it can do some things and it ought to do those and we shouldn't diminish its authority or its responsibilities in those domains, but it is a mistake um, to give it the powers or responsibilities that belong to others. As I write in the piece, we need to think about subsidiarity as um, you can go wrong in both positive and negative ways. That is, if a local government ought to do something. It can go wrong by not doing that thing. 
but a local government can also go wrong by encroaching on what families should do or what individuals should do. And the same thing can say about could be said about all of these entities. You need to do what you're supposed to do, but not encroach on the responsibilities and powers of others. Andy, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, I I want to follow up because again, you've you've led well into our our next question. Um, your piece sort of posits subsidiarity as a kind of antidote um, to the statism of the new right. You know, the, the, we've just been kind of talking about these these kind of more statist uh, strands on the right. And you you talk about our uh, subsidiarity. You, you just said it pretty well. And in, in the essay, you say that it articulates the proper relationship among different social institutions, as well as the inherent power and duties of each. Um, you compare it to America's system of constitutional federalism. Um, you also label it alongside classical liberalism as a bulwark against those on the right advocating for a more muscular, far-reaching, centralized government. But if this is the case, how does subsidiarity differ from classical liberalism and or American federalism? You know, in your view, does it simply sort of reinforce arguments that conservatives and libertarians have made for a long time about restricting the power of the federal government? Or is it genuinely a different thing, a totally different lens through which to view the role of government in public life. I, I, I guess what I'm getting at is, can you talk a little bit more about the relationship that something like subsidiarity would have to something like, you know, traditional conservative principles of federalism or, or something like classical liberalism? Yes. So I think of subsidiarity as being um, complementary to liberalism um, but that means it's different in some ways, like there's overlap in the Venn diagram, but there are some pretty important differences. And I think of federalism as being like a species of the genus of subsidiarity. So let me just do liberalism first. So um, lots of people have written a whole lot about what liberalism is and is not. So at the risk of oversimplifying things, um, liberalism really prioritizes the individual and individual freedom, whether we call it non-domination non, uh, or non-intervention or negative rights. Mm-hmm. It is about what the individual, um, he or uh, uh, or she, has the right to claim. Um, and a lot of things flow from that. For example, a limited government, and depending if you talk to libertarians or conservatives, it can lead to different kinds of things. But very little in liberal theory um, will tell you about duty and responsibility in the same way that subsidiarity will. Subsidiarity is very clear about individuals and families have responsibility to themselves and to their uh, their children. And communities uh, have responsibilities and powers. And unions and local businesses have duties and responsibilities. State governments have responsibilities. So you can find as like a um, like an emanation or a second generation consequence of liberalism uh, some of these things that we're talking about but it is not necessarily the case that you will read liberal theory and then come away with the sense that there are obligations that are different like different uh, spheres of influence for these different entities within uh, uh, public life the other thing I should say is that um, it relates to mediating bodies, and we can come back to this later if you would like to, is it's not really clear at all if you were to read 
through, I mean, especially centuries ago, a lot of the liberal theorists, what role a church or what we would call a non-governmental organization, or like a PTA or a bowling league or like a soup kitchen, like what role that plays in public life. Now, there are people like Hayek who very smartly um, uh, wrote, and you can find this in Burke and Oakshot and others, but essentially that liberal life leads to the creation of associations and assemblies um, traditions and institutions that if people live in liberty over time, they're going to create these kinds of things. And not everyone agrees with that, and that isn't necessarily part of the theory that um, maybe Locke was thinking about uh, 300 plus years ago. Um, but at least that argument has been made. But certainly, I'm drawing these distinctions because subsidiarity is very, very clear that these mediating bodies, non-governmental institutes, have responsibilities in public life, as do state governments, federal government, families, um, and so on. So there are those kinds of differences. Now, briefly on federalism, the reason why I refer to it as like a species of the genus is because subsidiarity is about the proper distribution of power and responsibility, federalism reflects part of that story. It is the differences between what the federal government can do and state governments can do. There are enumerated powers. There's a supremacy clause. There's the necessary and proper clause. There's the Tenth Amendment. Um, there's the Ninth Amendment. So all of these things distinguish um, the spheres of the state from the federal government. Mm-hmm. But federalism doesn't answer these other questions about what is the right um, way of thinking about the difference between state governments and local governments, or local governments and uh, civil society, the wide array of non-governmental mediating institutions, or families, or individuals. So yes, federalism is consistent with, um, but it is certainly not consistent to describe all the things that subsidiarity is trying to get at. Yeah, th- that makes sense to me, Andy. Um you know, one thing that I think makes it different too, just as as a very basic fact is, and I I think perhaps the reason that it was, that subsidiarity speaks more to these mediating institutions, as as you point out, is because it was created by one of those mediating institutions, right? I mean, it was, it was created by, you know, the the church as, as we've discussed. And, and so it, I think it does have a more robust teaching about sort of how you press down from you know, the top levels of power and authority through these mediating institutions, um, you know, to, to affect change. Um, and, and, you know, in the piece, for example, one thing that you point out as the, the, the subsidiarity can help us not do is basically just eliminate, you know, all of these mediating institutions and just have a society where it's the state and, 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 and individuals. Right. And I think yeah. even these conservatives that, you know, you, you've talked about as um, sort of nationalist, populist, etc. Um, they also, I don't think, want a society, at least in my understanding of kind of what they're after, they don't want a society where it's just the state and individuals either. Um, and so I guess what I wanted to ask you is, and then at the same time, yeah, at the same time, American conservatism, some of the stuff that I think we're proudest of as Americans is when the state has sort of... <laughs> You know, I think of I think of something like civil rights or or slavery, right? Some of the greatest accomplishments in the in the American kind of tradition, and, and I'd like to think the American conservative tradition, are using this power of the federal government, for example, um, to 
ensure sort of basic rights for individuals. So I'm kind of wondering if subsidiarity being Catholic actually has a hard time speaking to that aspect of something in America that we're, we're very proud of as Americans. What do you think of that? Okay, let me answer these uh, the two parts of your question um, in different ways. So the first part is about um, subsidiarity and the role of the federal government, especially in our history, in solving some big problems. And the second one is about the hollowing out of the space between um, the state and the individual. And both of these are important, so I want to uh, address them both. On, on the first, uh, like I said earlier, it is absolutely clear in subsidiarity that all of these entities in public life, including the federal government, have responsibilities and have duties and have powers. And so, for example, I would never, and no one I think should ever argue that the federal government should be completely emaciated. No, it has a certain duty to protect our borders, to protect us against um, enemies who would want to attack us, but also to preserve at the highest level the rights that we hold dear. So um, the, the rights, for example, uh, after the incorporation doctrine of the 14th Amendment, there are certain rights um, in the first eight amendments that are applied against all of the states. So we have national understanding of what it means to have free speech, to be free from illegal searches and seizures, to be free from um, uh, certain uh, punishments under the Eighth Amendment, the, the process rights under the Fifth Amendment, um, what equal protection means. So it is the federal government's job, without question, to ensure all of those things for all of us. So the federal government absolutely does have a role um, in subsidiarity. The danger, and this leads to the second part, uh, or what was your first part of your question, uh, about the hollowing out. Um, it is, I think, enticing to look at the good things the federal government has done. For example, we won World War II. We created the um, interstate highway system. Uh, we have protected um, free speech rights to reason from there that Uncle Sam should do more and more and more and more. Now, I think the lesson is that Uncle Sam, when he does, the federal government, when it does the things that it ought to do and does them well, it benefits all of society. We get into dangers, though, when it goes too far and starts encroaching on what um, – states should do, what voters should be able to decide in different states or different localities to do differently. So when the federal government does something, it typically does something uniformly, like there is a rule or there is a policy on this and there can be no difference. Well, that takes away the ability of states or local governments, um, individuals and communities to reach different decisions on things. So lots of people have written about this over time. My favorite author is probably um, Nisbet on this matter, The Quest for Community, um, that the more power you give to the federal government, the central government in any kind of country, you might think that you're doing it out of the best of intentions, that you're doing it to help as many people as possible, but you have to recognize that other types of institutions only exist to the extent that they have things to do. When you give the federal government the state's job, um, you start to enervate, take away the energy, take away the purposes of states. When the federal government does things that local governments or nonprofits should do, you start to take away the reason for being of all of these things. So 
there actually is almost a zero sum thing here. You cannot continuously give power and duty to the highest levels of government and expect the middle to still be there. You are sapping away their energy. And this is why I love subsidiarity, because it tells us, yes, have the federal government do the things it ought to do, but go no further. Have states do what they're supposed to do. Have mediating institutions do what they're supposed to do. And the coda I would put on this is, and I get this in the final part of the essay, is that is the proper way, I think, to think about federal policy. Um, if you notice a problem, the first question you should ask if you're a federal policymaker is, is this the kind of thing that we, the federal government, have to solve ourselves? Or is it the kind of thing that someone else should be solving? And our role is to make sure that those entities have the capacity to solve the problem. And I think that that has been lost. The idea that um, capacitating is actually a very big part of the federal government's role, but also state government's role, making sure that other entities can do what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Um, and Andy, uh, you mentioned sort of the end of your essay. We're, we're going to get into the last couple of questions here. And it kind of, um, as you write in sort of one of the last books of your essay, if you really study subsidiarity and what popes and others have written about it, it suggests, as you say, six rules of thumb uh, for people who lo- are looking to apply it to policies. And obviously you particularly mentioned family policy. So we're going to go through those a little bit, and then we'll ask you kind of a final question about how to apply those practically. But, but first off, um, yes, yeah, so you say there's six rules of thumb. So I'll just read those off real quickly here. We've got uh, first that the government must clearly identify a problem and it must ensure and then it must ensure that any interventions it undertakes after that are targeted, proximate, limited, rehabilitative and temporary. Uh, So what if you could just kind of walk us through some of these rules of thumb and why you think they're important um, for policymakers? Yeah, sure. And I call them rules of thumb to try to suggest to people that they are good principles that you should start from, but they're not dispositive. Like they don't answer all of the questions and um, they're not perfect in every sort of instance, especially if taken to um, uh, what some people would view as um, not like a logical conclusion, but an illogical conclusion. So rules of thumb suggest a way of thinking about this, but I believe that these are important and they certainly informed my thinking on these subjects. So the first one, clearly identify a problem. Throughout the writing on subsidiarity, it is very clear um, that what Pope's, what the church is trying to say is that it's uh, undebatable that individuals and families and different groups run into struggles sometimes. And that is just natural. And we should have some kind of means to deal with that. And in the essay, I talk a whole lot about how the concept of subsidiarity, literally like the meaning of the word, the etymology of it, relates to support and standing up. Mm. So subsidiarity is largely about helping those in need, but that is contingent on there actually being a need. That is, um, subsidiarity stops the federal government or any kind of entity from just roaming around and deciding, well, I can do this, we ought to do that, um, because then that can enlarge its sphere of action and start to diminish the responsibilities and the powers of others. So if Uncle Sam just says, well, I want to take over family life, or I want to do all these things on transportation policy or education policy, 
well, that might sound good in the moment, but you have to identify a problem and identify who is not doing his or her or its job Mm -hmm. before you engage. And this is a way of beginning the process of deciding what the problem is, who needs to solve it, who ought to be solving it. So it stops any kind of what subsidiarity would call these larger order entities from just freewheeling and starting to um, get too big for their bridges. Um, The second one is I call targeted. Um, If there is a problem with local governments not doing their job, we need to help local governments do their job. Do not look at that problem as a way to implement a grand scheme to take over all of society. Um, You have to recognize that individuals have their duties, families have their duties, locals and states have their duties. Mm -hmm. So target the interventions on where the need actually is. Again, this stops us from just roaming around and having the federal government get so capacious that it takes over everything else. Um, Proximate is the idea of um, Pope John Paul II wrote about this uh, in a really beautiful way that I, I quote in the essay. People closest to the problems are best able to solve them because they know the people there, they know the communities there, and subsidiarity has long been associated with the idea of concentric circles. Um, that there's the circle inhabited by individuals and then a larger circle around that by families and all the way up to the federal government. The closer you are to the problem and the people, the better off. And so I talk about the rule against leapfrogging in the essay. If individuals in a community are having a problem, it's the responsibility of families first to help and then local nonprofits to help. And then if they can't, local governments. What we should be very conscious of is not leapfrogging, immediately saying, well, Uncle Sam from Washington should come in and solve this problem. Um, because he doesn't have that power, but also because uh, he doesn't know the issue as well. There's no way that the federal government can know every single community, every single town, every single person in the way to provide meaningful support. Okay, the last three are sort of my favorite, especially the last two. Um, Number four is limited. Again, this is similar to um, the first couple. Uh, If there is a on a 10-point scale, a two-point problem, you don't want to generate a nine- or ten-point intervention. You have to be worried about dependence, uh, creating de- dependency, um, or what a lot of these encyclicals talk about, stealing the energy, stealing the initiative, stealing the responsibility of other entities. So when there's a problem, try to solve it but solve it in narrow, limited ways so it's not making um, others dependent or in the long term putting them in a uh, position of perpetually needing others to do the jobs that they ought to do. Number five might be the most important, and it's talked about the least, and I call it rehabilitative. Um, We need to make sure that interventions help those who are responsible for something have the capacity so they can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, if, uh, if a local community is having trouble, uh, helping its people who are addicted to opioids, um, we need to help that local government gain the capacity so it can take up its job. This gets to the point of naturally all of these entities in public life have responsibilities and have powers and to the extent that there is an intervention from some higher order body, it needs to be designed to help those who are responsible for things have the capacity so they can do those things. The opposite of that is which 
um, that we should avoid that I see happening too often, especially from those who want a very big federal government, is seeing a problem, knowing that states ought to deal with it or community-based organizations ought to deal with it, but instead just the federal government takes it over in perpetuity. So they are not rehabilitating the state or local entities. They're just taking away that power. Um, and that's avoided. And the last one is temporary. Uh, and this is of a piece with the rest of them. Provide support, provide aid to those who are in need, but don't make it go on forever. Make sure that you are helping those who are out of work um, uh, through unemployment benefits or find a job or get the education that they need. But don't um, create a program that exists forever that makes them dependent on the state uh, and takes away from them the duties, the responsibilities, the powers that they actually have. Well, Andy, um, thank you for giving us that that overview of, of these six rules of thumb, these sort of principles that can help guide uh, real life policymakers as they're approaching something like family policy. Um, and I, you know, we talked about those in kind of in kind of theory, but I'd like to apply them in practice. Um, at the beginning of your piece, you criticize uh, pretty strongly Senator Mitt Romney's Family Security Act, a proposal that you say would replace much of the federal government's need-based work-incentivizing welfare system with regular checks from Washington to families, regardless of whether the parents are employed. You know, As you know, Romney and his team have since updated their proposal, and they released version 2.0 in June. So they released an updated version of this, this, this idea. Um, I just want to ask straight up, what do you make of the new policy? Um, do you like it more or less than the first, and why? Uh, thank you for asking. Um, the short answer is it is uh, better, but by no means good enough. The first version, um, in my view, violated virtually all of the rules of thumb, the principles that I laid out. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not being rehabilitative. It's free um, checks to support families from the federal government. Um, it's not aimed at those who need it. Um, so it's not means tested. It would even go to families um, that have middle or upper um, median incomes. So it was um, kind of social assistance state uh, that I think is dangerous and violates so many of these rules. Um, not least of which that it was going to do away with most of the welfare programs that I think are essential to subsidiarity. Welfare, the idea um, is, especially after um, the Welfare Reform Act of the mid-90s, the temporary aid for uh, uh, temporary aid for needy families, TANF, um, the idea behind that was the federal government working with states is going to help those who are in need, which I absolutely believe in, but do it on a temporary basis aiming um, programs on those who are out of work, who are impoverished, help them get education, um, help them um, make ends meet for a, a period of time, but not do it forever. So in the piece, I laud welfare, but especially the Welfare Reform Act. One of the big problems with the Romney plan to begin with is it completely um, dismisses, like erases the difference between need and not need, which I think is completely wrong. If families are in need, they should get the temporary support they need so they can 
um, get back up on their feet. Um, but we shouldn't be handing out free government money to everybody if they don't need it. So I thought the first version was was all wrong, and I would have voted against it happily and quickly um, and passionately. The second version makes some improvements on some of these dimensions. So there is a small work requirement, which is better. Um, it doesn't do away with some of the welfare programs, uh, which I think is is good. Um, so it moves in some of these directions, but I still think that the idea of the federal government cutting checks to all individuals in a certain class uh, for a long period of time, presumably 18 years or longer, um, is the wrong way to go about this. We need to think about what are the roles of local governments, of state governments, of nonprofit organizations uh, in these kinds of roles as opposed to just free government money. So I'm happy that he was thinking about family policy. I think the first version was very wrong. I think the second version is better. It does raise these questions, I hope, for other policymakers. Why are we not talking about conservative policy um, f- uh, at the state level? Why are we not thinking about what nonprofit organizations ought to be doing? Why are we just looking to the federal government? Andy, thanks so much. I'm going to ask you one last uh, one last question, and it's, it's pretty simple. If you were advising Romney and, and, and his team, for example, in making version 3.0, what what is maybe one or two big practical things you think they could adjust to to improve? I would say go with the Rubio Lee plan of child tax credits, which is a way of recognizing work and earnings and the needs of families. Go in that direction. But then also don't think that just because there's a problem that Washington needs to solve it. I would love to see Mitt Romney as a governor trying to do these kinds of things or that he or others work with governors or work with county executives and mayors to do these things. Yes, there's a problem, but what subsidiarity tells us is don't just look to Washington to solve these problems. There are other entities that have the responsibility and the power to do it and to do it well. Well, thank you, Andy. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This has been great. If you'd like to read Andy's essay or other articles on National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. You can listen to more episodes of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. Please subscribe and leave a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.